Welcome to Co-op Nerd Out, brought to you by the Triple Eight Cooperative Causeway. Welcome everyone to Co-op Nerd Out. My name is Anthony McMullen. I'm the chair of the Triple Eight Cooperative Causeway. My co-compare is Gary. Gary, could you introduce yourself a little bit? Oh, well... Yes, my name's Gary Cronin. I've been around the co-op area for 30 plus years, so I have a long-standing interest in this area, both interested in old established co-ops, which I'm currently researching, but also a great interest in new innovations, new changes, things that are happening in the cooperative and the mutual sector and the wider social economy sector. So that's my interest. My interest too, Gary. Um, I'm looking forward to this uh, conversation, the, the third in our co-op nerd outs. Now, we're going to start with a little bit of a conversation with Anne Apps, who's an academic from University of Newcastle. I'll introduce her in a moment. And we're going to talk a little bit about what happened at the ICA Congress and maybe a little bit about what, what actually the ICA is um, for, for those people mm. listening who might be a little bit unfamiliar with the ICA. So it'd be a good starting point to talk a little bit about that and then actually what happened at this, this big Congress that's just happened. Uh, and we've also got uh, Anthony Taylor here from the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals who will so reflect on, on the year that is just about passed uh, from the view of what's been happening in Australia and more broadly. So um, welcome, Anne, and welcome, Anthony. Hi, uh, Anthony. Oh, yeah. Hi, no, Anthony. No, go for Anthony. it. Yeah, sorry. And Gary, um, it's lovely to be here with you on a Sunday morning, and um, I'm really looking forward to talking about all things co-op um, and have just you know, spent a couple of days in the last week um, listening to the uh, Law Forum and also the the Cooperative Research Forum, which were both events that were held just before the Congress. So hmm. um, looking forward to talking about some of the things that I heard about there. Great. Well, I might give you a little bit of a formal introduction, Anne, Anne Apps. Anne Apps joined the Newcastle Law School as a lecturer in 2010. So that's uh, a law school in in the uh, in Newcastle in, in New South Wales in Australia. Uh, Anne was previously employed as a solicitor in regional New South Wales, where she has practised in the areas of civil litigation, property and commercial law. Anne's broader research interests include cooperative law, which is why uh, we've got her along here today, but also um, corporate governance, um, corporate social responsibility and uh, legal models for social enterprise, another uh, interesting area in terms of building a social and solidarity economy. Uh, Anne, uh, you're actively engaged in promotion of co-op education at the moment uh, and you're also in Ius Corporativum, could you pronounce that for me, and as you're a member of, of that right. organisation? Yes, yes, cooperativum. Yeah, thank you. So a little thank bit of Latin. Yeah, well, my mum learnt Latin, but I didn't, and that's a bit embarrassing. But anyway, it's a community of international cooperative lawyers, um, and you're also the editorial 
uh, committee member of the International Cooperative Law Journal. <gasps> That's a lot. Welcome, Anne. Uh, it's great to have you on Co-op Nerd Out. Uh, now, you've you and everyone else that's listening to this, you've heard this sort of formal bio, uh, but I'm interested if you could talk maybe a little bit about yourself um, and what what motivated you to get into this co-op area and what you like about co-ops. But really, starting more from from you and apps, what what's what's the connection between you and what drives you and your connection to this broader cooperative movement? So I have been in Newcastle for a bit over a decade and, and I have to I have to say I love living here. I love Newcastle. It's a great mm. it's a great regional city, uh, yeah. two hours north of Sydney for those that don't know it. We Newcastle University gets mixed up with the University of Newcastle UK quite a lot. Oh. Um, and we're working on developing some relationships with that university because, because of the mix-up, so taking advantage of that. Yeah. But I'm a girl from Bega on the far south coast of New South Wales, and for much of my adult life um, I lived on a dairy farm, and, of course, Bega is well known for its cheese. Um, but it was a town that had a, a, a very strong co-op, Bega what is now known as Bigger Cheese, but demutualised in 2008, I think it was, but still yeah. very much a core part of that regional yeah. community. And I think without without Bigger Co-op, um, it probably wouldn't be the town that it is today. So I grew up in one of those country towns that had a co-op store. Yeah. Still have amazing memories of going into what was a, a big department store in the town. It, was, it, it had departments that had everything and... Um, remember the the cash uh, system where you would put money into a thing that looked like a light bulb and it shot up to the roof and travelled to the the um, the main cash register. I wow. remember those sorts of things from my my childhood. But um, I worked as a solicitor in that town, which was very much a country practice, I suppose, as mm. a regional solicitor. So I dabbled in a little bit of everything, but have always had a passion for teaching. So um, I actually worked as an academic at what is now Charles Sturt University. So mm. it was then the uh, Wagga uh, College of Advanced Education. I spent a couple of years out there as a young, just after graduation as a lawyer mm. um, and loved and loved it, really loved it and, and only left because we were starting up a new dairy farm on the south coast. So ended up back in Bega for the next 20 odd years, but continued to be involved in education. So I would say that definitely um, education is an, an adult education, tertiary education, but also TAFE, any mm. sort of adult education. I did a few years as an industry trainer as well. So um, that's probably my first love. Mm. So when I had an opportunity to take up a full-time academic position at Newcastle, I, I, I did. I, I jumped at the chance and, and I've had a really great time here. Um, coincidentally, I started my PhD. Um, I didn't have a PhD when I started my academic career, but uh, things rules changed and, and I was told that it was a good idea to get a PhD. I'm yeah. still doing it. It's the longest PhD, one, one of the longest PhDs. I think I've managed to draw it out right through my whole career. <laughs> But it started, uh, my ideas 
to do it on cooperatives probably started because I had worked uh, as a corporate law teacher uh, for almost a decade uh, as a sessional teacher with the University of Wollongong and um, and still had an interest in corporate law teaching when I came to Newcastle. And when I was looking for a PhD topic, I sort of wanted to do something that was corporate governance, but I was interested in why what made co-op governance difference, different than corporate governance. So I think mm. that's how I sort of found my way there, but it was a bit of an accident. Yeah. Um, academics get a chance to go to international conferences and I stumbled upon an ICA conference which was held in Croatia. And I can't remember the exact year, but it was either 2014 or 2015. Yeah. And and that was that was really the beginning of of my I'd fallen into co-ops, but I didn't really know much about them. And that was an amazing experience. Um, I met some wonderful people and and have continued friendships um, ever since that conference. So it was really the spark that lit the fire. Mm. Um, so, yeah, still working on cooperative research. So my, my thesis is by publication, but I'm specifically looking at cooperative law and whether it matters or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've looked at at how how cooperative law has interacted with some of the co-op sectors, obviously agriculture, dairying in particular, yeah. but also other areas where it has or hasn't had a presence, like housing, mm-hmm. banking and finance. Um, these are the main areas. And I'm currently working on a bit of a co-op history, the history of co-op law, not not co-op history but the history of co-op law in australia mm-hmm. and that's been that's my current research and that's been interesting so a bit of a connection with gary i think around the dairy background and um you know actually Anthony, having you can always trust people that grew up in country towns <laughs> i grew up in a country town too not that far away from wagga or andra that's new south wales and co-ops oh, yeah. were certainly around including yinda co-op and part of the landscape part of the dna yeah so that sort of uh was there in the background i suppose when you um had the opportunity to develop um research as as an academic in the area and you mentioned before that you had that background with uh, you know, more sort of mainstream corporate law and you're looking at um, cooperative law and whether, whether you know, what what's the use of that and what's the connection. And so, you know, for, for people that are having a listen, uh, maybe um, getting their head around the whole co-op space, what, mm. what does make um, cooperative law special when we're thinking about something like governance and more broadly compared to you know, mainstream kind of um, legal models? That's a complex question. And I think one of the things that really struck me as as somebody that taught um, corporations law and mainly Mm. for for business students, so at that sort of pitched at that level, so trying to explain the the framework and architecture of company law and, and, you know, what were the obligations of directors on boards, one of the things that really struck me initially about co-op law is that it didn't look a lot different, you know, that there was so much overlap between yeah. the architecture of the two frameworks. I think that really surprised me because 
because obviously the output's very different. So, so the the interesting thing was then why why do we have a framework that looks much the same as as uh, a corporation and and how and how then do these organisations have such different outputs? So where you know where where are the differences? Mm. What are the most significant parts of those differences? And obviously, the big one is the one member, one vote, the democracy. Mm. Um, so that you end up with a board that instead of being, you know, people that are bought in from the outside, you end up with a board of people who have come up through the organisation. Um, so they're actually, and of course, because of the nature of a co-op, which transacts with its users, you then have stakeholders on the board because if you're a director of a co-op, and you're an active member of the co-op, then you're also a stakeholder in that co-op. So that relationship mm. being really different from, you know, an investor-owned organisation. So it's it's how how it manifests. I think some of those rules that seem not obvious but make a mm. difference. Anthony, if I could just uh, come mm. in there yeah. and ask Anna a, a, a quick question. It, it seems to me that in a for-profit company, there's a very clear objective, is to make a bottom line profit. Mm. So, but in a cooperative, there's a wider range of outcomes. It's not just about bottom line. And that can affect corporate governance, can't it? Because it's harder one to measure it. But also it means that the management and the directors need to be focused on their members' needs and it's not always bottom line performance, although that's important. So corporate governance plays out every day in a different way, doesn't it? Or would you agree? Absolutely, I'd agree. And, and it, it's really particularly obvious in my study of agricultural co-ops because the thing about agricultural co-ops is that the members, as you know, as those that transact with the co-op, have a huge uh, stake in the business and so what you end up with is you know a democracy that is not just it's not not just about one member one vote but about about people who who really do have a stake in the business so there is that reciprocity and and then you end up with a very active and engaged membership and this is something that you don't get in in mainstream corporations we hear about shareholder activism and that's an exception, not a rule. Um, and we all probably have shares in various companies where you get the odd invite to a, an AGM. But generally speaking, the investor members are very separated from the management of the organisation. That's not the case in co-ops. So mm. there, there can certainly co-ops can have difficulties around this. But but in a in a healthy what I call a healthy co-op, there is this. Uh, incredible interaction between management and the members and the members have such a stake in the way the organization is governed that you end up with as you as gary mentioned you know uh an organization that's not just looking at at the financial bottom line but is looking at all sorts of other things that matter to the members it's, it's the wonderful thing about co-ops, but it's also their biggest challenge in many ways because they're working with an within an environment that is essentially financialized. So, so when they're working with metrics that measure financial performance, but that, that's not the only thing that interests them, then, then they have this, you know, tension that they have to grapple with all the time. Mm. 
There's some stuff around this mutual value me measurement that uh, mm -hmm. that is, uh, you know, uh, it's gaining a bit of interest as a sort of a, an Australian framework for for measuring value in, in cooperatives and mutuals. In terms of the board, though, uh, and and the the kinds of decisions uh, that they can make, they they can make. Uh, are they less confined in a way um, when when they're a, a director of a co-op? I think one of when I was doing some research for this agricultural co-op paper, mm. I was writing one of the most sort of really um, compelling bits of information that I came across, it came from a member and then was confirmed by the board of, of a co-op that had since demutualised and become a listed company, was that mm. there was an openness in the communication between the board and its members that, that can't occur if it is a listed public company because of the issue of continuous disclosure. So once uh -huh. uh, an organisation becomes um, a listed company, then the board's communications are very, the board's deliberations about decision-making become very much behind closed doors and separate from the membership. They have to actually keep that information from the membership because once it leaks out, they have an obligation to disclose it to the market. You don't yeah. have that problem in a co-op. You yeah, don't yeah. have that problem because your investors are your members and mm. you can be completely open and transparent about your deliberations. So. It's a really interesting point and one that people don't realise because the board themselves will say that makes their job much more rewarding because when they're deliberating, they actually can talk to the people who are Im impacted by the decision and say, what do you think about this? And they can have these sorts of conversations. So this came up in a conversation about, you know, a chairman of a board and a farmer member who had a long, long history in that co-op and the chairman of the board used to drop in and have, you know, and he was also an older and, and seasoned member of the cooperative. So the younger chairman of the board would drop in and have afternoon tea and have a chat and get the feel for how things were, you know, happening on the ground from from sort of almost like the perspective of an elder with an elder's wisdom mm. who had a much broader view of what was happening and then all of a sudden those conversations could no longer take place you know it was, was really really sad um but but that was one of the the things that happened when that particular cooperative became a, a listed company mm -hmm. i haven't actually heard that observation before but of course like with with the disclosure obligations. I mean, there's very serious penalties for Absolutely. for directors when when they uh, step outside of mm -hmm. of the law. There, so um, that's a really interesting point. And also, just with the measurement thing that you were talking about before, and um, is is this? What, do you have any thoughts on this um, mutual value measurement? Um, uh, I know it's pretty new. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's out of Monash university and i know it's um doing some stuff uh there's a, a, some collaboration with the business council of cooperatives and mutuals do you think um that that could be helpful in terms of um, measuring um success measuring engagement with members those sorts of things 
There's a couple of things, just a couple of points. I, to be honest, I don't know enough about that particular tool. I, I'm mm. aware of I'm aware of its existence and, yeah. and and that it's potentially an important thing because mm. trying to measure value is is you know has always been a challenge for co-ops. Mm. But it's mm. I just wanted to say it's interesting because it's come up in conversation more generally about the fact that. It, you know, this was one of the things that co-ops sort of said is we produce all these value, which is not just about the financial bottom line, mm. but have difficulty in measuring that value and that's a problem for us. But what we've seen for some time now because of the rise of corporate responsibility, co- corporate social responsibility, and the fact that mainstream corporations are very much moving into this sphere for, for, for a whole range of reasons, mm. Mm. sort of like you know, the green greening of uh, mainstream corporations, then there is a lot more um, demand for measurement of things that are not just, you know, not just about the financial bottom line. So we're seeing all sorts of ESG or CSG, um, corporate social responsibility tools out there. And, and that's great because it means that um, yep, accounting's, accounting firms and auditing firms have moved into that sphere. I think Anthony's got something to say on this too, and I'll, I'll, I'll just, just finish the point, is that there's been a conversation about the fact that this creates another isomorphism problem for co-ops. Ooh, so, isomorphism problem. Now, now, before we go to Anthony, um, yeah. can, can you tell me about what, what does that mean? Yeah, it's a word that's been thrown around a lot and, and when I use it in conversation, everyone's going, what? What is what? isomorphism? Yeah. And I think, uh, look, the, the word's used um, in a couple of contexts that can be used, I guess, internally or externally. But it's mean, it means when when things, you know, essentially become homogenised. And, and this is a big thing in the business world, like that, that business models are homogenising and, and, and laws are standardising. And obviously this is come out of globalization, but this sort of idea that we all approximate to one uh, standard model or one standard law or regulation is this mm. sort of, it, it'll drift into the debate that we'll have in a minute on harmonization of co-op law, but um, I'm keen to hear what Anthony's got to say. Sure. Anthony. Well, it's a very good segue, I think, Anne, because it, what we're just talking about now goes into um what Gary will get to about the theme of the ICA Congress as well around identity. Because yeah. I think from, from BCCM's point of view that the mutual value measurement framework is something that we developed with Monash, as Anthony mentioned. Um, it was an industry partnership with Monash where co-ops co-funded it and worked, did the field testing to work out how they could measure, have a system that was focused on member ownership on a cooperative or mutual model and actually built around their identity first. And so I think, as Anne was saying as well, when you're seeing things like increasing focus on ESG standards, that's something BCCM is really aware of. And as a movement, we want to be able to go into that conversation, but with our own identity. So bring in something like mutual value measurement and try and have standards that are shaped by the cooperative and mutual sector, influenced by the sector or have our own standards. 
um, in, in that discussion. So it's not just uh, all, yeah, what will happen otherwise, I guess, is it will all be shaped around what um, investor-owned businesses want to do, perhaps what B Corps want to do um, in that space who are, although B Corps are a mix, there's co-ops and mutuals that are becoming B Corp members, but I guess, again, they're, probably their starting point is from investor ownership, but doing nice things which is not the same as the, the co-op and mutual model. It's a, as we all know, it's a, we're a, a solidarity model. But so, yeah, the short thing there is that I think MVM or the mutual value measurement is about, ties into what we're, a lot of what we're talking about today around identity and mm. avoiding uh, isomorphism. Mm. Mm. Well, isomorphism, um, we've talked about big, I think big, Maybe this is, we'll have a discussion about B Corp. I think maybe in a future co-op nerd out because it keeps on coming up. You know, what, what, where, where does it uh, meet with co-ops and mutuals? Where, where does it depart? How rigorous a process is it? Um, is it is it something to be incorporated within the the co-op and mutual family or not? Or work alongside? So I think that that's an that that'll be an interesting uh, topic, but it's also the mutual value measurement and um, cooperative identity, uh, and the work that we've been doing in Australia around that. I also think will be of great interest. So, and um, before we we go to 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 Gary, I'm just you you are at the. Um, ICA conference, in, and I'll put that in inverted commas, probably online like me and uh, all of us actually in the conversation today. Um, what were your impressions of the ICA um, Congress this year? Um, sorry, I, I, I just wanted to hark back a little bit because I just yeah. just a little point that, that is floating around in my head and I have to get rid of it before I can talk oh, about the ICA con- Congress. But it just goes back to what what Anthony was just saying and what the point that I was trying to make about isomorphism before was that of course co-ops have always said look one of the things that distinguishes us from an investor-owned corporation is that we don't just have an economic output we have an economic and a social output so the the I guess the competition um, that's come from ESG and corporate social responsibility and particularly when you start to measure it is just is that investor-owned corporations say, hey, we too have a really uh, significant social output and here we go, we're measuring it. So, you know, Mm. look at us, we're we're great, we're doing all of these wonderful things. And so the question then is if if they can do, if, if they are not just investing in a financial bottom line but also in a social, uh, you know, in their social responsibilities, then do we need co-ops? The thing that's left out of this sort of... um, or, or that, that is not well understood, is that there's still an inherent difference between the two models. And one is, and, and this difference is that one is about um, any attention that the model that the investor-owned company gives to social issues is external, right? So profit is still its bottom line. And if it's uh, using some of that uh, profit to invest in social responsibility, it will only do so while that has a positive impact on its financial bottom line, for example, reputational, because we now have, you know, discerning investors, for example. Yeah. Whereas for a co-op, 
the uh, the bottom line is economic and social. It is internal. So, so it's not externalized. It is the social is internalized. And one of the best ways I sort of came to understand that is to think of uh, a, what might be a B Corp, for example. Uh, but is an investor-owned organisation that is doing good. So it might produce a, a, a product or something and, and raise money. I think Thank You Water might be an example, something like that, or, or all of those products where it says, well, you know, buy our water or buy our soaps and for every dollar you spend, a proportion of that money will go to creating um, wells in, in a country that doesn't have access to water. So that's our social good, but it's an external social good mm. because those people who get the wells have never had any say in whether they want those wells in that location or whatever. You know, it's this, uh, it's, it is, someone is the beneficiary of their philanthropy and the beneficiaries of the philanthropy are external to the organisation, whereas in a co-op, the, beneficiary, the beneficiaries of the philanthropy are stakeholders in the co-op. They are internal to the co-op. They're members of the co-op. And through democracy, they get a say in what it is that they want. Um, mm. So, mm. so this is this, this difference that's not well understood between the two models. There's also another point, if I might, yeah. um, add, which is that uh, co-ops have been very flat-footed about all of this. Um, one of the things the ICA Congress highlighted was that, in essence, all this ESG stuff is basically in the DNA of the cooperative movement and has been for 100 years or so. But if that's the case, and I, I believe it is largely, it begs the question as to why we haven't more effectively measured it and highlighted that difference as a point of strategic difference, both mm. for individual businesses competing against for-profit um, organisations, and more particularly for the wider cooperative economy, if you like. So there's a real challenge in how we effectively manage it, uh, how we measure it, rather. And the, the Congress also very much linked this ESG um, uh, arguments to the wider um, sustainable development goals, which are really driving a whole range of um, other businesses um, to become more sustainable and more transparent, more accountable with better governance. So that global framework of measurement of outcomes, um, uh, as the, uh, the CEO of ICMIF, the, the, uh, the international peak organisation for the mutual insurers said, the SDGs are a, they're a gift to the cooperative movement mm. because it enables us to showcase what is exactly at the core of our organisations. And the others, as um, Anne is saying, is perhaps they're faking it to some extent in some ways sometimes. There's a lot of greenwashing that can go on mm. with some of this reporting for for-profit organisations. Co-ops don't. But what co-ops haven't done um, is actually been measuring it and reporting it themselves and embedding it in their business models and making it drive them um, more uh, explicitly. That's a key point of difference. It's a strategic benefit to co-ops. It's 
it's all about impact as well, which was another of the themes that came out of the Congress. It's about the co-op difference having an impact, not only to members, but in a wider sense. I'd also say one of the big differences with the T-Corps and, and others, and it, it's slightly different interpretation to what Anne was saying, but co-ops don't operate alone. They operate as part of a wider social and economic movement. And that's the difference the co-ops make. Mm. It's that ecosystem perspective, that mm. co-ops. You don't only build a business, you build a movement. And that's another theme that came out of the mm. Congress, which is, and particularly the speakers from Mondragon, they were really talking about the way you build a system as you build a business. And you don't get that in some of this other reporting. Mm. You don't get that in some of this ideas that they have to be more accountable and they're johnny come lately uh lately people to to this debate they've sort of embraced it but they've been made to embrace it in many ways co-ops have been doing it quietly and patiently but they haven't been talking about it mm. and haven't been measuring so there's it's got many sides to it this whole mm. issue about measurement um it's good and bad for co-ops it's good because it's part of what they are it's bad because we haven't been doing it effectively enough. Well, we've already started talking about the ICA and the ICA Congress. And uh, for those uh, that are listening to this and, and still learning about the, the co-op movement, uh, and Gary, you, you have been involved in different ways with, with ICA. Um, quite directly in, in your professional career, um, as well as indirectly. Um, could could you give us a little bit of a 101 around um, the International Cooperative Alliance and um, also this this Congress that, that's just passed? What, what's that all about? Uh, yes, it'll be a pleasure. Um, I, in fact, I've had the pleasure of working for the ICA globally uh, as Director of uh, uh, policy, research, communications, and uh, a few other bits and pieces mm. um, uh, when they were based in Geneva about a decade or so ago. Um, the ICA was established in 1895, um, and it's an international organisation which brings together, which groups together the national and sectoral organisations of the cooperative movement. Anthony, Anthony Taylor is... Uh, he works for the Apex organisation in Australia, uh, the Business Council of Mutuals uh, in Australia. And so that's one of the members of the ICA, which has something approaching, I think, about 110, maybe 120 um, members from right throughout the world. The ICA, it, after its formation, really set about trying to better understand how co-ops operated and who and what they were. And they drew on a range of different cooperative traditions, going back to the 1840s in Rochdale in England for the consumer cooperative tradition, the, the Reifeisen banking and other traditions, the French worker traditions, the Danish uh, dairy uh, traditions, um, a whole range of other global influences. And they crystallised that ultimately in a set of global principles. Uh, which are sort of known as the ICA principles. And 
every now and again, basically every generation or so, they look at those principles, informing principles, and Anne was talking before about law um, and cooperative law in Australia. And in fact, the, the current cooperative law in Australia includes the ICA principles as part of that law, uh, as do many other countries. They most recently reviewed it in 1995 at the centenary conference of the ICA and incorporated not just principles but values and, in essence, the ethics informing the international movement. So this Congress, this 33rd Congress of the ICA in Seoul, in Korea, uh, which has just finished, um, basically has set the scene for the next real review of the ICA principles. And it, it started that discussion, this worldwide discussion, and I'd encourage listeners and others to visit the ICA site I'm not sure how much of the ICA Congress material or the research and the law uh, conferences will be available to non-registrants, but nevertheless, the ICA is opening up a discussion globally on these cooperative values. And there are a couple of aspects to that. One is the internal pressures, the isomorphic pressures Anne was talking about internally for that one co-op can have on another, um, uh, and also the external isomorphic pressures that predominant business models in insurance or agriculture can influence co-op models in those areas as well. But there's also a wider range of factors, the pandemic, uh, inequality, and most particularly environmental and climate change concerns. So the Congress considered all those matters in, to varying degrees. So it's very interesting. It's not only important, this Congress, for what it discussed over the last week, it's important for opening up that discussion as we go forward. Mm -hmm. And and what were your impressions of the ICA Congress? Okay, so uh, just to, to clarify, the ICA Congress is really the Congress of practitioner members of the mm. ICA. So these are the organisations, the businesses and the peak bodies um, from all around the globe. And just just for listeners who who haven't, you know, had much to do or interacted much with the co-op mm. movement globally, so I, I would, you know, concur with Gary that you should really check out the ICA website and the ICA uh, co-op for development website because they're both they both give you an idea of, of the breadth and scale of the co-op movement globally. So one of the things that you can look for, and I, I just wondered, it just occurred to me when Gary was talking, I don't know if people realise, but we talk about, um, what do you call them, your, your domains, your website domains, that mm. .coop so, or .coop um, mm. is the, the uh, suffix that you'll find uh, for co-op websites. The ICA uh, is, I think, ICA.coop. Um, so you'll find uh, lots of co-ops use that uh, domain, um, for their websites. But the Congress was um, for the practitioners, but before the Congress we had two research conferences that ran together at the same time. One was what what is the traditional uh, uh, cooperative research conference and the other one is a relatively new strand, which is the Law Forum. Mm -hmm. um, 
and they ran together. But I've been involved with the the lawyers that um, have been coming to the research conferences for for quite a few years, and it's funny to have had some heated debates with my friends about why do lawyers always think that they're so special, that they need to have their own forum, you know, why are they doing this? They're just uh, separating themselves out. Um, they, should, uh, they shouldn't do this. So, so I've had that discussion with some friends. But I do understand from the, the lawyers that are involved um, and have been involved in setting up the forum that what their tr- law has always had sort of experienced difficulties as a discipline. It is a profession law, but it hasn't always been well recognised as an academic discipline and it always struggles with research because our methodologies are unusual. Um, uh, we, we have this thing called doctrinal research and then we start to morph with other types of, you know, social science research and so on. But my understanding of why we've established the Law Forum is that we are trying to establish an epistemic community of lawyers with an interest in co-op law. And that's important because co-op law is not well understood and having these debates and discussions about co-op law with the broader community is important, but it's also important to set up a research community um, that interacts globally on issues of cooperative law. Hmm. So so I haven't I wasn't involved in the Congress, but just the research conferences. And yeah. I didn't go and I mean you know, again, like this world that we're living in at the moment where everything is online, we know is double edged. You know, one of the good things about this research conference was that it was more accessible for people who wouldn't normally be able to afford to travel. Um and, and we know that people from third world countries are locked out of many of these research communities because they don't get to attend research conferences. They don't have the funding. They're not given visas, you know, something that I've only just become aware of recently. So some of these, some of these academics in third world countries, they want to go to these conferences and they've even got the funding, but they actually can't get visas to get in um, and get on the ground. So during the pandemic, the fact that all of these research communities and, and congresses have been available digitally is a wonderful thing in terms of access. So that's been fantastic. But it, but it also meant that our program was probably chock-a-block because um, we hadn't thought about how do we deal with this, this increased access because normally <laughs> when you have the conference on the ground, so many people who submit abstracts don't show up and, and you have smaller panels. Yeah. Um, so that was a problem. But there were some people on the ground in Korea as well, so it was a hybrid conference, the research conference. I wanted to say something because I feel quite passionately about this. There were some really excellent presentations by some young scholars on things that are concerning them, and I think that it would be great maybe even to have a continuing conversation. We probably won't get too far in today's um, podcast, but some of the themes that some of these young scholars talked about, which are relevant for everybody, but one was the 
the philosophy of cooperatives. And I think we've seen a lot of attention paid on the enterprise aspects of the model. And perhaps now that we're talking about cooperative identity, we've had to reconnect with the cooperative philosophy. So so the, the underpinning philosophy of the movement is just as important to the cooperative identity as its economic aspects, so the mm. business side yeah, of it. That's, that's very true, Anne. So philosophy was really a, an important thing that was taken up by the young people. They can see this. And what they, I think they're saying is that, listen, you guys, you're missing out on this massive opportunity to connect with young people mm. because young people, whether they're part or know anything about co-ops or not, are concerned with these exact same issues at the moment. And there you are, you already are a well-established social movement, but you are not opening your hearts and minds to uh, what young people have to contribute in terms of there being a global social movement of people that are concerned about what's happening to the world because of our anthropocentric views. Mm. So... So I think there's really interesting stuff coming out of some of these discussions. So the themes were philosophy, also colonialism. The ICA hasn't really acknowledged that it is Eurocentric and that it has uh, developed those cooperative principles, um, but that those cooperative principles have been used not just for good um, and that... For example, uh, you have to have a look at, I'm just giving a book pitch here because I have such huge admiration for for the research of Rita Rhodes, uh, who has a, an amazing book called Empire and Cooperation, where she talks about how the British uh, took the cooperative model around the globe, but that it was used very much as a development tool. This is interesting to me because I'm a lawyer and I'm looking at legal transplants a lot and a lot of the law that I'm looking at in countries like the South Pacific, for example, is Mm. transplanted law and it was bought by the colonisers and it was imposed upon people because essentially the Brits were really keen for um, these colonised countries to produce and to send their produce back to the UK and the co-op model was used... um, Mm as a mechanism and as a tool for colonisation. So, so the, decolonizing. The classic Indian Act was, yeah, the, was one example yeah. of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I was talking to somebody about that the other day and I think one of the initial motives for the, the Indian Act, which was very different from the UK Act, so not an example of a straight transplant, but had built in a lot of the aspects of the, I think, was it the Raffheisen or the, yes. uh, yeah, yeah. Um, the the, oh, the other German model, was it the, the, I can't, it's just gone from the tip of my tongue, the Schultz, the other, the other credit union model, anyway. Yeah, the urban one, yeah. Yeah, what the, what the, the, what the British colonizers were looking at there was, I think, a lot about how do they uh, how do they get the land, the farmers in India out of the grip of the the um, the moneylenders. So, you know, their indigenous systems of moneylending there were tying up um, production, 
So that's why I, I'm not sure if I've got this. this is really an abbreviation and I'm not sure, sure and I'm happy for anyone to jump in. But I, I do think that, that that law was based on credit union law because the idea was that can we substitute, um, you know, cooperative systems of, of financing agriculture to the existing systems which are really tying up people because they're so indebted to their money lenders. So it, I'm not quite sure if I've got that right. But but it meant that they came up with quite a different model than the English model, which was the Industrial and Provident Societies Act. And then this particular model, which was we call now the British Indian pattern of cooperation, but a particular law that was a hybrid law. And the, and the first, I think, global template law because it was spread um, around many yeah. of the British colonies. Yeah. There, could I also, the, you touched on the young researchers, and I think there's hope, there's real hope amongst some of those young researchers who presented, particularly some of the younger women uh, researchers impressed me. Um, the, one of the things, you mentioned that they're talking about similar things, but not necessarily in the same way the established co-op movement talks about them. Mm. But they have a language and a sort of fluency um, around current events which resonates, I think, um, with younger generations now. And I think it's a real challenge to the co-op movement to listen to some of these younger researchers and others who are, who are interested in solving some of these problems using what in essence are co-op models. Um, and the talk, one of the papers was on decolonising cooperative principles, sort of deconstructing at one level and understanding what is currently still applicable and putting it back together. So there's there's some real, really interesting ideas coming forward and young researchers. So that's, that's one of the advantages of the virtual conference. Some of these young researchers themselves um, can speak to a wider audience and uh, start to build a career in this area, which is so important as well. Mm. Yeah, so, so there, there was just a few papers and the, and, and the one about the philosophy and one about decolonising, but also there were a couple, uh, Gary and I have already spoken about a young fellow who talked about cooperative education and obviously this is something that's, you know, pretty dear to my heart about that um, taking a different view of, of how we engage in cooperative education. That was a paper by Danny Spitzberg, yes. US uh, academic. I think he's been around for, for quite some time, mm. but has been involved in platform co-op movement. Um, but I just think he made a fantastic point about this missed opportunity with co-op education because he said basically we seem to have just two sorts of co-op education. One is co-op 101 for people who don't know anything about co-ops. And the other is a co-op for uh, co-op managers, co-op education for co-op mm. managers, so those mm. that are on boards and so on. And he said, really, we're not engaging with the um, the startup community who may not know about co-ops but are sort of looking for them, you know. They're out there looking for co-ops but they don't know what they are yet and, uh, and they may have these uh, entrepreneurial ideas um, and they're looking for, for alternative ways to, to set up their co-op. And I had a quick look this morning at, at his slides, Gary, thanks for sending those through, because uh, he talked a lot about Mike Cook's life cycle model and he saw that as a, a sort of a, a, 
something that you could use in terms of a template for for co-op education because at different points in the co-op life cycle, co-ops are under different sorts of pressure. Including the isomorphic pressures as well. Including isomorphic pressures. And that so different types of co-op education were needed at different pressure points and that what was really important was about bringing, you know, communities of people who are involved in co-op enterprises or, or other enterprises together at similar points in the life cycle so that yeah. they could not just learn from the educator trainer but also from each other about how their strategies and ideals, ideas for dealing with those different sorts of pressures. Mm-hmm. Well, that was really cool. Is that like communities of practice, Anne? Is this, are we talking about kind of peer communities of, of dare I say, it, mutual support? Yes. Yeah. The language may be slightly different, but, yes, basically that. Mm. Co-ops have a lot of intellectual capital, which they haven't really pulled together in particular ways. Um, the, there are a large number of speakers from Mondragon at the Congress, and Mondragon went through a restructuring a few years ago where they decided rather than being totally internally focused, they were going to be more externally focused and, in a sense, take a little more of their model to the world. And that's very, very interesting because the world's been beating a path to them. Um, but they've, been, they've now sort of looked back out through the window in a way And the Mondragon model is a very, very interesting model for future co-op development and one that's founded on principles, um, a range of principles. They've added to some of these values and whatever. But it's also one which devolves um, or um, uh, democracy down to a lower level. It's not just all centralised. It really looks after the members within within it and the employees within the overall Mondragon model, and it's, um, it, it's a very, very interesting model on how you can scale but maintain values and principles, mm-hmm. um, and innovation. Innovation was one of the other key words that was talked about a lot at the Congress. Um, innovation in terms of being cooperatives, but innovation in terms of responding to some of the wider economic and societal challenges. So quite interesting. Mm-hmm. We've just had a, a discussion in Australia and um, Timor, as well as in the Americas, uh, about the legacy of Aris Mendiareta, the, the founder of, of Mondragon uh, in, a, in, a, in its cooperative form, um, which will be coming out soon. And, yes, I think if there's any discussion about um, revisiting the cooperative principles, I think a good, a good way of... Uh, thinking about that would be actually to incorporate some of the the, the sort of the expanded, the, the principles of Mondragon ex, expand on the core principles of the international cooperative movement and, of course, are going to be more inclusive of worker cooperatives because we've, we've had such a focus on consumer cooperatives in different ways, but we we haven't had as much of a, a focus on, on worker cooperatives. So that can that can only only be a good thing. Uh, and um, and Gary, did did either of you have any sort of last reflections on on the Congress of things that might um, inspire the movement in the future? And then we'll we'll talk to Anthony about what's been going on a little bit more more locally and a bit. And we, we can all of us can start to look at the the year that is slowly 
slipping away from us as we move into the next year. Anne, would you like to start? I guess I guess what I'm I'm thinking about is that you know there are different conferences and congresses that are taking place all the time, particularly now that we've we've got everything happening in in the virtual world. But I think Gary touched on this earlier, and it's probably really important for people to be aware of this. This is a really special congress uh, in the sense that it is this generational review of the cooperative principles. That's what's happening. So it's not just a congress where everybody gets a chance to speak and then, you know, ideas just sort of, you know, drift off into the ether. There is a lot of work that's still to be to be done. Um, and, and instead of it culminating in this conference, this conference is really the beginning of this work. So I think everything has been pushed back uh, sort of a year and a half because of the pandemic. But there'll be a lots of activity um coming out of this Congress because the review of the cooperative principles is the main work that needs to be done now. Um, so I think that, like Gary, I'm feeling inspired and I think that that's always an amazing thing that happens and why we know that research conferences are so important because when you get to hear the ideas of others, it, it does, you know, it it either lights the fire or it keeps the fire going and burning. So I think there's lots of uh, interesting things that we hope will come out of this Congress and I'm really excited to hear you even mention this about Mondragon and workers' cooperatives because I do think that what we're seeing is an interest in um, in the worker cooperative model and, and to some extent that model has been neglected um, by the cooperative movement, which has had a very strong connection to the, see, the Rochdale principles came out of consumer co-ops. Um, so perhaps it's time for us to think about how that focus is shifted because one of the things that we're increasingly becoming aware of is that things aren't going well um, under the investor-owned corporate model for the world, not just for people who are interested in co-ops, but for the world generally, things aren't tracking well and it's time time for attention to be paid to the things that might underpin why things aren't tracking so well for us. Mm. So mm. Um, I, I'm looking forward to, to next year. I'm looking forward to seeing how some of these ideas play out but I hope that we see a return to the a focus on the movement because I think that's what will capture the imagination of young people if we do focus on the deeper um, side to cooperatives rather than just the enterprise side, but the social movement side of co-ops. Gary, did you have any the, It's a segue, I think, from Anne's about the movement. I've always been convinced that the best co-ops operate in the best movement. Um, uh, you don't have the best co-ops isolated from the co-op movement. So it's about the movement as much as it is about the business. Um, we, we live with a lot of these global problems. And I mean, the SDGs are part of the global answer to that. But for co-ops themselves, they're living in an increasingly contested sort of policy and legislative space, because you've got You've got the for-profit organisations and you've got them embracing some of this ESG stuff, right? 
Um, and on the other end of it, you've got a, a myriad of other alternative models, um, often inspired by the notion that you can take to market some of these social uh, organisations, associations or, you know, have B Corps or various other things, but they're driven by a market solutions. And sitting in the middle of that, you have this co-op with this long tradition uh, and a set of uh, core values at its centre. And it's a crowded field in many ways. And a lot of new researchers, a lot of people new to co-ops, the people we were talking about, that researcher in New York doing that work on uh, education and innovation, a lot of the people are looking for solutions and finding them not in the co-op space. So co-ops have to compete in this sort mm. of market of ideas and organisational forms. And absolutely critical to that is having a very distilled idea of who and what you are and mm. what you're about. So mm. that issue around core values is so critical, both internally, strategically, and answering wider social and economic problems. So I think this is the start of a wider dialogue. So hopefully our listeners and others can join in that uh, wider mm. debate and have their voice heard in this. Well, that's a nice way to finish off the discussion on, on the ICA. And, and thank you, Anne, for being uh, a guest today. Uh, and we're going to just finish off with a little bit of a, a broader conversation, which, which can include all of us. But, but firstly, uh, Anthony Taylor. Anthony, Anthony is the uh, policy lead at the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals. So probably has his finger on the pulse of what's been happening this year in Australia and in our region. Uh, so I'd be interested, Anthony, if you have any any reflections on the on the year, um, maybe things that are happening at the moment, some things that might be happening next year, wherever you want to go with this. Sure. I mean, it's uh, this is challenging just to, to pick a few things to focus on, mm. Anthony, but I'll, I'll have a go. Um, have a crack. So I thought firstly maybe I'd just touch on how, how the movement or some of the key sectors where we have co-ops and mutuals in Australia or where they're a significant part of the economy have been going this year. So if we look at um, banking, mutual banks and credit unions, financial cooperatives, um, the mutuals industry review just came out uh, this week or last week, very recently, and it showed pretty strong growth, 5.1% lending growth, 8% deposit growth. I don't have the numbers around how that compares to their competitors. I think it it just shows that the financial sector has, the impact of COVID has been different for the financial sector, but you can at least say mutuals are, um, in that sector are having a decent time at, right at the moment. I think they've still got bigger picture challenges. Um, we're still seeing mergers in that sector. There's two big mergers on the cards for the next 12 months in the, the financial co-op space so um heritage bank and people's choice credit union are planning to merge and the other merger is the two big newcastle building societies newcastle mm -hmm. perm mm -hmm. and um greater bank mm -hmm. um are also looking to merge so that that activity is still happening the drivers there are still that the, the mutual sector is um trying to compete with the big four and the other really large players that they're quite small as individual um in you know they're long established 
um, organizations, relatively large membership base, but when you compare it to something like Commonwealth Bank, they're still very small. Um, I think in agriculture, agriculture, agricultural co-ops have had a pretty good time through COVID as well, actually. Um, CBH, the large um, grain handler in Western Australia is ha having a record harvest, apparently. Um, so they're doing well. They've managed to, um, they've, you know, they've had some trade headwinds, but they've managed to get through that fairly well too. Um, and we're seeing a, a expansion of co-ops on the east coast, the agricultural co-ops in the northern rivers. A lot of them are investing in plant and new processing. Um, so Oz Group, the blueberry co-op is growing strongly as well. Uh, Norco has expansion plans that they're implementing, had a very um, strong financial result, a strong surplus uh, this year as well. And out of cooperative farming, which was the program BCCM uh, delivered that ended around the middle of the year, a few of the co-ops that were supported with education and training and funding to sort of incubate, I guess, are starting to come through as well, which is really exciting. So the Regen Farmers Mutual is just about to finish a crowdfunding, equity crowdfunding round to do their seed funding. And that's a farmer-owned mutual model to get into things like carbon markets, uh, just a, a classic co-op thing to, to do, to cut out the middleman in a market where um, that if it's an investor-owned broker, they're charging a massive commission and it's small farms are too small to enter the market by themselves. So it's to solve those two problems. And another one is the, uh, a very small startup co-op, Myanmar Agricultural Co-op, formed by five um, refugee families from Myanmar. Um, that was one that was supported by the Co-op Federation through cooperative farming. That's also kicking off, has a lease to run a cooperative farm. So that's not something that's super common in Australia, but seeing actually the co-op model at the individual farm level is something interesting. Um, in health um, and health insurance, Australian Unity has done another issuance of mutual capital instruments this year. Um, and so they've raised around $350 million in mutual capital instruments. So that's a really, I think for the co-op nerds out there, go and read the prospectus, have a look at actually how they've structured the instruments, uh, it's an interesting case study of the type of hybrid capital that fits with the cooperative or mutual purpose while meeting the investment needs that the, the co-op has as well. I think it balances that pretty well. They've also, something they've done that they haven't spoken about as much publicly, I think, is that they've their membership has expanded. They've included more of their customers as members of the mutual at the same time. So I think that's a really positive thing to see them doing. In terms of um, BCCM activities for the, just for December, we've still got a couple more things coming up before we, we wind down. Um, we have a social care community of practice, which is really, we were talking about this just before around at different points in the life cycle um, that people can come in and learn about co-ops or if they're already co-ops improve, share knowledge. So that's really targeted at potentially not-for-profits, existing not-for-profits or groups of consumers who want to learn about the cooperative model in social care, in, in um, care services, community services. And each time um, people can hear from a established co-op or a 
recently established co-op about what they've done. We're also launching um, on 9th of December an Indigenous inclusion report. So really that is just, again, it's a bit like the ICA conversation around identity. It's, it's to kick off more of a focus for the cooperative sector in Australia on engaging actually between with the long established and quite large actually cooperative Aboriginal owned and controlled cooperative sector, uh, which is something we haven't done really as well as we should have. So that's a really exciting thing to see, see what we can do over the next couple of years, um, building out of that, that launch of that report. The last thing I, I just, I didn't, I forgot about this before when we were talking about the Congress, but one thing that happened again at a side event to the main Congress was a lot of the um, thematic bodies and sectoral bodies for the ICA also hold events at the same time. So actually two things, the Asia Pacific um, region had its elections for its board and Australia um, has a representative on the board out of those elections. So the deputy chair of CBH group is on the ICA Asia Pacific board. And I believe Gary might correct me if that's the first time Australia has been on the board or it, if it's not the first time, it's the first time in a, a long time that Australia has been on the board. Of the Asia Pacific. Yes, of I think Asia. so. Yeah. So that's, that's fantastic. Um, outcome for the Australian movement and also SOCOPA, which is the body for worker co-ops and <clears throat> social cooperatives, has launched an Asia-Pacific division, um, which I'm really excited about. The worker co-op movement is a small part of our sector in Australia, like in a lot of countries, but I think we have to um, start to build the networks and that's what SOCOPA is doing with that Asia-Pacific division for our of the world so i'm hoping that we can participate in that from the australian sector get involved a bit more in the worker co-op the global worker co-op movement well very busy still very busy at the business council of cooperatives and mutuals anthony, anthony i wonder if i could ask a couple of questions of anthony yeah. um the, the there's one thing i just like your reflections how far does this merging of credit unions go? Um, do we end up with one big credit union? Do you think that's the way we're heading? I, I guess it's it doesn't seem to be stopping, so maybe that is where we're going to end up with maybe five or six big mutual banks or cooperative banks. Um, I, I do. I don't know. It'd be an interesting research question for someone about why. In Australia, that's the model that we pursue, for better or worse, is a merger model, where in other movements, you would see a similar consolidation through a, probably through a federated structure. Um, I don't know the answer, but it's an interesting thing to ask. I think you do know the answer. You just suggested it, I think. Uh, the federated structure, I, that's one of the lessons out of Mondragon, is to federate and have mm. hides of... In innovation and various things happening. Um, the the other question, um, the Australian Unity that that's a considerable capital raising that three hundred and fifty. It follows the first one. I can't remember how much that was. But it was two hundred or two hundred odd, wasn't it? Oh yes, that that amount is the total across the two. So I think the first oh, right. round was a hundred and something, and the second round is two hundred and something million. Am that's I right in? 
in understanding that's the largest ever capital raising that's occurred um, within the sector in Australia? I don't know. Maybe the only one that was of that scale would mm. be Namoy Cotton at some point might have raised a similar amount. Yeah, I'm not quite of that scale. Yeah, I don't think quite of that scale. It, it's quite significant um, um, in terms of what it actually means about raising money for mutual businesses. So, yeah, no, very interesting. And just the other thing that was the second time around, the cost for, for the mutual of raising the capital this way has come down. So I think it's sort of proven that this type of instrument can work, that the markets can accept it, that it can work for co-ops and mutuals as well. Yeah, proof of concept and whatever, so and the market accepts it. So, yeah. They've, done a, they've shown leadership for the rest of the sector, actually, to mm -hmm. go out and do do, do this work, um, do the first one. No one wants to go first. No. Yeah, and that has implications for Anne's work, I would think, those sorts of things. So. Yeah. Absolutely. There's a few things there that do have a lot of implications. I think I'm so fascinated by this question of why we've, and sort of part of my thesis about why why we've gone down this merger and acquisition, the vertical model rather than the federated model is something that's really of great interest to me. Um, so what is what are the regulatory pressures that have caused that in Australia that haven't caused the same sort of response in other countries who have been able to develop uh, good federated structures, and I think that's that's something that needs more attention. So, um, so it'd be good to even think about carrying on conversations around that and what Australia can do to enable federations of co-ops um, so that we have that small but distributed sector, like smaller organisations but more distributed. Because, of course, mm. once you start to to amalgamate vertically, I think then you have much stronger isomorphic pressures, both internal and external, um, mm. because of the governance structures that tend to push towards more corporate type of governance. Mm. Um, so that's really interesting. I'm interested in the mutual capital instruments and, and what that might mean for, for the credit union sector who haven't yet, um, I mean, the pressure to have mutual capital instruments largely came from the need in banking and finance because of the the uh, Basel Three prudential requirements that said that you know banks and and financial um, institutions had to hold a certain amount of Tier One capital. Um, mutual capital instruments were a response to that, so it's really exciting to see Australian Unity jump out as a a leader because I, I agree with you. I think once that's been done and it's been done successfully, then you may see others follow suit. But it'd be interesting to watch that space and see if any of the the um, financial institutions, the cooperative or mutual financial institutions are prepared to have a shot at issuing mutual capital instruments. Because um, I do know that it makes it very difficult for them to compete in the sector. Um, their lack of... Um, tier one capital unless they draw that capital from reserves. So really interesting stuff. And I feel a little, I, I realised as I've got to, we've got to the end here that I didn't talk about co-op law very much. <laughs> but, um, but maybe we're just saving that for another day. I think we we can have another day and, and we will welcome you 
uh, back on the show, I am sure, to to discuss that because there's so much to talk about with the, you know, we talked about the mutual capital instruments and, and how we can talk about these things called cooperative capital units, which we haven't had a big success story like what's just happened with Australia Unity. But I guess the overall uh, outlook here is that um, Australia Unity is using these mutual capital instruments as a way of, of um, growing. They um, are very, very committed to the mutual model. So that fear that a lot of us have had in, in the broader movement about utilising some of these uh, investment techniques has been, oh, maybe it's a stepping stone to demutualisation, but it seems to be the reverse with Australia Unity. So uh, that would be, uh, it would be interesting to talk, talk to them uh, in the future on the podcast about how that's gone and maybe how we can uh, build up more of a conversation about that. And yes, and I think there is an opportunity to get very nerdy about uh, cooperative governance and corporate governance in a future discussion. Um, and I think we've just uh, we've just been going around some of the surface with that, and we can go much much deeper and nerd out a lot more about that in the future. But I think uh, we've we've had a good bumper way to to finish the year um, for our little co-op nerd out podcast. Uh, Anthony, I, I really enjoyed hearing that rundown about some of the big, big stats and facts and 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 things that have happened over the years. So thank you for that. Uh, and it's great to hear about you and your connection and your journey into the cooperative movement. And just like pretty much everyone that we talk to, it's that oh, I sort of stumbled on it and then I just loved it. So there's that that's always the case. Uh, and we're just hoping that our little program our little podcast will help more people just to, to stumble into it as well and, and have a similar um, journey and joy about finding this model. And Gary, it's been great working with you on on this podcast this year. This is our third one. We're still finding our feet uh, with the podcast um, format, but I think uh, it's it's a cooperative and learning process. So Absolutely. thank you. Absolutely. Uh, Gary, do you have any final thoughts before we we sign off? No, no, just to wish everybody a, a Merry Christmas and let's hope we all have a very happy year yes. um, going forward, as they say. Yeah, a, a merry one and a, and a sense of optimism and building the movement into into the new year. So thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening to Co-op Nerd Out, brought to you by the Triple Eight Cooperative Causeway. Mm-hmm.